Good morning, everybody. You hear me okay? All right, awesome. It is a lovely morning to be with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Kevin Kersney, but I am the discipleship pastor here. Every now and then, I get to get up here and, and talk to you guys, which is always, uh, uh, it's good, but it, boy, is it a challenge. It's, it's a tough thing. I, I can't imagine. The guys that get up, like when Isaac and Sam, they get up weekly, and they do this type of thing, and, and you, should, uh, you should be proud that you have that many good speakers. Um, I'm just, I'm a third string guy, but I'm praying that God brings me through, and you will hear the first string word of God today. All right. So here's the deal. Last Sunday was Father's Day. Uh, Father's in the room? Because last day you weren't. I mean, last Sunday. Okay, so Father's Day was awesome. We've been going through a a kind of a tragedy in in our family. My wife's mom passed away on the Friday, right before Father's Day. So her sister came into town, and we were doing a lot of things. and, And I always joke with my family that Father's Day doesn't count anyway, right? I mean, it's Father's Day. Uh, you know, Mother's Day, you got all that cool stuff happening. Father's Day, it's like, okay, I'm going to barbecue a steak, you know. But they actually blessed me. They blessed me in this amazing way. We were out doing stuff related to her mom passing, and uh, they took me to a fantastic place to eat, which I wasn't expecting, and they had one of my favorite things. And uh, I'm going to show you what that is, and, and you'll see that we'll, we'll try to link this to what we're going to talk about today. But how many of you like oysters? All right. All right. It's just like, there's like five of you. <laughs> In my family, this goes, it goes directly down the line of gender. My son and I love them. My daughter and my wife will not even look at them. Right? They are, because, you know, for, from our perspective, they're wonderful. They've got a salinity, a briny taste to them. It's like, it's like someone loogied in a shell and you're going to swallow it, right? So it's... <clears throat> So it's a little bit unusual, but it got me thinking. When I think about uh, an oyster, um, those are eating ones. These are actually Kumamoto oysters, which are insanely good. They're small, so for those of you who might be like a little worried about trying an oyster, I recommend these as your first shot. Um, they're lovely, but there's something about oysters that, uh, that these don't have. Do you know what that is? You know, you know what happens in oysters sometimes? I think I heard it. Every now and then, oysters, specific kinds of oysters typically, will end up with a pearl on the inside. And pearls are wonderful because they're one of the, the few, if, if not the only, gemstone that is made organically by an animal. It's amazing how these actually get created. And I mean, like, so, so that stuff around the, the pearl, yeah, that's the stuff I like to eat. So how many, there's like five of you in the audience that like eating oysters, and the other of you are like, yeah, I like pearls right? So pearls are wonderful. They're, they're, they're amazing. And, and to be honest, what happens in a pearl is a, an, an object or a bacteria that's not supposed to be in there gets in there, and the, the, the animal itself starts to create a covering over that. It basically, it's called knacker, what we know as mother of pearl. And, and over years, what happens is, is it just builds up and builds up and builds up and creates this wonderful, iridescent, beautiful thing. It creates a beautiful thing over a long period of time. Cultured pearls, if, anyone, if anyone's familiar with cultured pearls, those are the ones you probably bought your wife because the natural ones are far too expensive. The cultured pearl, you take a little, what they do is they take these little shapes, like a little ball, and they'll throw it in, the oyster, in a particular type of oyster, and then they come back three years, and a pearl gets built over, over that shape. So sometimes they make different shape uh, pearls and that type of thing. But they're incredibly um, valuable. 
There was one that last year, this just last December, went for $1.5 million on auction. A single pearl. It was a single natural pearl. And then there's other pearls like this one. This is the largest pearl that was ever, it was found, well, actually, it was found about 12 years ago. But two years ago, there's this Filipino fisherman who basically 10 years previous had found this when he was fishing. He was fishing, his anchor got caught on a giant clam. And if any of you know giant clams, they are giant. They're very large. And the, any gastropod, uh, you know, a, a mollusk of sorts, can have, can create a pearl. And this is a giant clam pearl. It is approximately 75 pounds. It is two feet across and about a one foot thick. And you can see that it's curvy. It's not round like that. I mean, not all animals will create a perfectly round pearl. Um, the guy hid it under his bed for 10 years for good luck. He did. He hid it under his bed for 10 years for good luck. And then just recently, it came out. <clears throat> and they're estimating, I don't know what the truth is, but they're estimating that that pearl, it's not a really iridescent pretty pearl, but it's so unique. They're saying it could be worth up to $100 million. I don't know if that's true because it's in like the Philippine city like center in that area. They just kind of put it right in there. And I'm sure they don't have great security. So I don't know if that's worth $100 million. But it could be. The point is, is you, can you imagine the amount of time that giant clam had to be there to create this pearl? At some point, and they say the giant clams can actually live 100 years. At some point, some small thing got in there that really kind of wasn't supposed to be there, and it comes out like that. It's amazing. Now, what does this have anything to do with what we're talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about David's covenant. We're starting into 2 Samuel, and, and I think there's something about a pearl that can help us you know, illustrate kind of what a covenant promise is like. Because if you really think about it, Pearls are created, they're a long-term result of adversity. It, it's something that's not supposed to, it, it, it got in there and really kind of wasn't supposed to be there. Or you could say it's a long-term result of disorder. Okay, so hold on to that for a second, because we're going we're gonna to have to do a quick bit of, of, of homework backwards to get you to where I want you to be. So if you think about uh, the story of in the garden, the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> everything was great. God created it that way. He brought people in to be vice regents to basically <clears throat> help create the, worships of, uh, the worship of all creation back to God. They were to be priests, in essence, priest kings, royal, royal priests. <clears throat> they messed up. And there's this scene in Genesis 3 where God is, is cursing the snake, and he says that there would be this this fight between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of humanity, and the offspring of humanity would win, but would be bit on the heel, right? There's this, off, this whole idea of the seed of this. There's going to be an evil seed and a good seed. Now, from there down to chapter 11 in Genesis is kind of just a horrible, horrible cyclone of human brokenness going downward, downward, downward. And then you get to Abraham, and the reason why I bring this up <clears throat> is because God makes a covenant with Abraham that helps us understand covenants and the Dave, David's covenant as well. So this is how it begins in Genesis 12. It's right after the Tower of Babel, which is where the, basically humanity's evil has reached its apex, trying to get their way up to God, and God comes down and says, uh-uh, not going to happen. <clears throat> At the same time, right after this, he goes to a man named Abram, who we know as Abraham, who is a pagan. 
He's in Ur of the Chaldeans. If you think about it, the Tower of Babel, Babylon, Chaldea is Babylon. He is kind of one of the guys from the bad area. But God calls him and says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless, you, bless those who bless you and whom him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, pretty straightforward. Abraham seems like the guy. There's something about this guy that God has said, I, I'm choosing you to, to have a great name for yourself. You are going to have all this offspring. You are going to become a great nation, and families of the earth are going to be blessed by you. You're going to hear this story over and over from us. We'd like to go back to these areas and remind you how this stuff started, okay? If we go further into Genesis 17, it it, uh, this is getting closer to the circumcision covenant, but it's all kind of combined in when you t- talk about Abraham. And God says, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. <clears throat> and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Okay, God steps in and says, Abraham, you're my guy because I chose you to be my guy. Kings will come from you. You will have offspring and nations will come from you, right? That's not something that happens right away. So you might start feeling that. You see this, this pearl thing, because if we look, really look at Abraham's life, we, we can say Abraham was a good guy, but didn't get it right all the time. He had adversity. Imagine being a pagan person called from your family in place where you have grown up into a new place that you don't know. Not only that, but you are carrying a God that is foreign and unknown to the place that you're going. So you're going to be worshiping a foreign God in this new place that that God told you to go. There has to be a level of trust and obedience that come from Abraham in order to do something. He's stepping out and saying, okay, I'm going to trust you, God, even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to make this jump. So he's a pagan in an unknown land, and he doesn't always do the right thing, (laughs) right? If you think about his, I think he tried to pawn off his wife twice said, hey, you're real pretty. I don't want the leaders killing me to get you, so just say you're my sister. This is a guy God chose, right? So he's not a perfect guy, but what I want you to realize is that through the dirt and grit of Abraham's life, there is this promise of something that is coming. Does that make sense? Do you understand my pearl analogy now? And I think you want to look at covenant that way. There's something about covenant promises that feel like there's this this good thing out out of adversity, out of difficulty, out of sometimes disorder in life, God is actually bringing something to bear, okay? So if we think of Abraham's promise, I want you to think about, I mean, Abraham has received this promise that he may not really see entirely in his lifetime. And we know from the stories, he sees kind of it partially, and the 12 tribes of Israel come from him. Um, so 
a nation does get formed, but, but after him. But I want you to capture this one thing about covenant. And if there's anything you take away, if you just ignore me for the rest of the day, my oyster madness and all that stuff, just simply take away this. That our God is relentless in using everything he has in order to restore his people to a place that is full of his presence. God is relentless in using all that he has to restore his people to a place that is full, I mean, overwhelmed with his presence. And this is what I want you to capture. When you think of covenant, I want you to be thinking, okay, this is God's doing this thing. So this promise is a people, place, presence. God wants to be, ever since Eden, where he was with people, where he was with his people, he was with his creation, he is trying to get his people back to where they should be, into the place that he wants them to be, operating in a particular way so that his presence can be with them the whole time. Now, we don't have time to go through other covenants, but this is a, you will see this floating through the covenants of the Bible. And this takes us to our text for today. Um, we're, we're jumping, uh, we ended last week on 1 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel, and we're, we're jumping into 2 Samuel, and I'm jumping already to 7th chapter. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, but at the end of the day, there are two scenes we're going to talk about today. There's, there's a scene where David and Nathan are together, and then there's a scene of David's response. So let's jump in. Now, when, king, when the king lived in his house, this is King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now imagine, you, we have these moments in our life. You imagine these, these moments, maybe you're sitting on a, in your, like, your favorite place, on your favorite chair, sipping a coffee, or your, your favorite beverage, if that be a beer or whatever, and you're pondering the things that are happening in your life, and you're with your buddy. Just, you can see it. You can see these two guys like sitting there like, you know what? David just says to Nathan, God's done so much for me, I, I want to, I, I got to pay him back. I want to do this for him. Now, so that you don't, you know, think this is just a Bible thing, this is actually a, a popular thing if you look at the ancient world. In the 15th century, for example, um, there was an, a, a pharaoh named the Third, and this guy, some people actually believe he was, the, he was a pharaoh during the Exodus, and there is, there's a song by his god, Amun-Ra, that actually, it's like a victory song because Tutmos was so successful in military conquest, he came back and he built all kinds of wonderful uh, temple stuff for his god Amun-Ra, and there's this, there's this obelisk that has a, a, um, a song that's the victory hymn. And in that, basically Amun-Ra promises his servant, the Pharaoh, I will make you be on the throne millions of years in the name of Horus, who's like the guy. So, so a king, an earthly king, building a temple for their primary God is not an unusual thing. Also, yeah, the Assyrians as well. If you go jump forward to 7th century, there is a, um, there's a king named Esarhaddon the second, I believe. And he actually, there, there's a story of him telling that he is going to build, re, rejuvenate and reinvigorate the temple of Asher so that Assyria would be protected. So you see, there's a, in the ancient world, this isn't a rare thing where a king just says, you know what? 
God, God's been carrying me through military. He's, he's expanded my boundaries. All these wonderful things are happening. But you know what? I want to pay him back. I want to do something for him. And Nathan, being the good friend, he's like, yo, do it. Go. Right? This is your buddy just automatically agrees. Now, Nathan is a prophet. I'm not going to go into him much. This is where he's first introduced in this story. But in the coming weeks, especially next week, you'll hear more about Nathan. But at the end of the day, the prophet is going to speak into the king's life and tell him what he should or should not do. And the immediate next scene, actually, before I get there, we, knowing what's happening before we, we get into this, this area, you have to know what leads into David wanting to build this temple. There's been, he has been crowned on both, all of Israel has basically accepted him as king, anointed him as king. There's a unification of all of Israel. He's been in two battles with the Philistines. This is right before he's getting into this covenant. There's two battles with the Philistines, one where it, he calls the, the Lord of bursting forth because the, the Lord went before him. And in the second battle, he asks the Lord, hey, should I go in? He says, no, actually do this other thing. Um, he constantly is humbling and submitted to God as he goes into war. He, be, he defeats the Philistines twice. So we've got unification. We have the Philistines being his enemies being defeated, rest around him. And the Ark of the Covenant, there's a story of the Ark of the Covenant that's being brought back to, to the city that he had just conquered. Right? And, and the whole point is the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool or the throne. It's the mercy seat where God, where earth and heaven and earth meet in this very place. The Ark, it's, it's the thing. It's, it's like this is God's throne. So he's wanting to bring it into the city. And they do all this pomp and circumstance. He brings 30,000 people into this. By the way, that 30,000 people is the same amount of people the Philistines killed when they stole the ark originally. Remember the biblical interpretation stuff. These images and numbers and sometimes settings are overlapping each other like Isaac had spoken about with Dagon, the God falling over, head falling off. Uh, is the same as, as uh, Goliath and his head being cut off by David. And in fact, even further, you go to Saul, the Israelite first king who did horrible things um, and offended Yahweh, he loses his head in battle. God doesn't choose sides. So in this Ark of the Covenant story, they put it on a new cart and they try to bring it into the city. And what happens is, is the cattle stumble and someone reaches out and touches the, cart, the, the Ark. His name is Uzzah and he dies. And it's interesting David is angry and upset because his friend is killed by Yahweh, and he says he's burst out against Uzzah. So he burst out against the Philistines, now he's burst out against Uzzah. This God doesn't play favorites. And the, the fact of the matter is, if you think of the Ark of the Covenant, if you know anything about the law, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried in a particular way. It had posts that were supposed to be carried along through it. The people would not touch it. It would be covered. There were particular people to carry it. So really that new card idea, though it may have sounded like a good idea, wasn't. And that ended up losing Uzzah his life. So you have all of these scenes coming together. David wanting to bring the king, Yahweh, the king Lord, into the very city that Yahweh has provided him. He's got unification. In fact, if you, if you transfer this, remember we talked about this. There you have a unified people now. You have a safe place, a place where they have rest from their enemies, and you have God's presence, his ark. So there's this fulfillment that God is bringing, but David wants to build God a temple. And while those other gods of the different places that I've mentioned, the king is actually building to, get, to pay them back. This is God's response. So I want you to notice the nuance here and the difference with the God of the universe says this, 
But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's basically saying, man, I traveled around with you. You don't need to do this. I didn't ask you to do this. He moves with this. His presence has moved with Israel through their wanderings, even up until this point. Now, therefore, thus, you shall say, Nathan saying to David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See how Yahweh flips the script. He basically says, you want to build me a house. No, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a legacy. I want you to have rest. I want a place for my people to be safe. I took you from following the sheep in your shepherd job to being a prince over the nation where the sheep would follow you. It's the importance of this kingship. So goes the king, so goes the people. God is saying, you have humbly served me. I chose you. I'm going to do this for you. So it's not a payback. God won't have it. God's saying, no, 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 you don't have to do this. It's my grace that's going to win. I am going to give to you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Okay, this covenant goes beyond David's life. And you see that word offspring. This is Zerah. So we go back to Eden. This brings us this, this twinkling idea of there was gonna be an offspring that comes from Abraham, that, that God had promised since Genesis 3, that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And somehow David is, is in line for this. There is this seed that's coming to him. When he commits iniquity, wait a second, he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love, my hesed, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So there it is. This is, this is the covenant language to David. You see these, these glimmers looking back to Abraham and Eden, and you see something that's looking forward to someone else is going to build this temple, but they're going to be established forever when they commit iniquity. So basically, the, the thing is, is God saying, my faithful love for you is not going to depart because your, someone in your, your son fails. I will still 
fulfill this. Your throne will be established forever. If you really think about it, this promise can't be broken by death, not David's death. It can't be broken by sin. If any sin and iniquity happens from his sons, that won't do it. And time, it's forever. Do you see how powerful and big this covenant is to a king? You will have someone forever on the throne, even if they're schmucks. And if you know anything about the story of scripture, there's a lot of schmucks that come after this. There's a lot of people that that really don't fulfill. They're not obedient to, to Yahweh. They're not trusting. They follow other gods at times. They sacrifice their children to other gods at times. But David is hearing that, hey, Even when you're dead, even when your children do the wrong thing, I don't care how long it is, God will be faithful to his covenant to a king coming from his his loins. The same which fits in. If you look back to Abraham coming, kings will come from Abraham. Oh, somehow we've gotten narrowed down to this king, this one leader of this nation that is supposed to be entirely saturated in the worship and love of their king, Yahweh. So what's David's response? And this, this is all chapter seven. We've done the first half, first scene, he and Nathan. Now, now there's a scene where it says that he's before the Lord. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord, God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So it's another one of the things. You, you have moments like this too. There's another pondering moment. You sit there and you wonder, How did I get here? And some of us, maybe there's been difficulty and that's wrought with anxiety, but some of us, maybe you have leaned into the king so much that you have felt, man, God, you have done so much wonderful, good stuff in my life. How, I I don't deserve this. David's in this moment. And when he, it says that he went and sat before the Lord, likely he went to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was carried. So the Ark of the Covenant is now there. Even though he was worried about it, he eventually brought it in. That's a story I skipped over. He, he brings it into the city, and he sits before the Lord and just says, you know what, who am I, God? I'm nobody. I'm nobody. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Do you feel the humility that David sits before the throne of his God and says, man, I don't deserve this. It's you that's great. This is that heart and attitude that when you hear God When you hear the Bible talking about David having a heart after God's own heart, this is the type of thing that you should be seeing. I'm not bringing stuff to the table, Lord. You are, but you know what? I'm gonna be your servant. I'm gonna do as you ask. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. He moves to the nation saying, hey, you put me in charge of this group somehow, and what better nation is there than the one you've put together? You've given me the access and right to shepherd this people, to be the prince to this people under your dominion. How awesome is it that you have put them together 
for their purposes. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of the little servant that, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of the servant be blessed forever. David is just going to pray that his buddy Nathan was, on, was spot on. Nathan brings this word from the Lord to him, and he just goes, you know what? I'm going to go to the Lord. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this blessing that I do not deserve. I am asking you to truly do this. I prayerfully come before you, but come before your throne and say, please, do this. So do you feel this is the way the covenant and kingship comes together? David, being the representative of his people, is called to be a particular way, kind of to be like Abraham, full of righteousness and justice. He, he's the one who to lead. And again, so the king goes, so go the people. So the covenant has brought itself down. It went to Abraham and a family, to a nation, and now to the leader of that nation, saying there will always be, God will always be behind the leader of this nation. Covenant and king, David feels this. He sees this. You've got to know, they were saturated in these covenants. He knows the stories of Abraham. And he knows, I am in, this is a, um, what's the word for that? Just the key, it is an, opus. It's a magnum opus moment. This is a moment for David. This, this is it. It's that time. You, you know where it is. Maybe you got that job that you always wanted and you figured nothing is better than this. David is at that point understanding how God's covenant and his vocation that he's being called to have come together. But here's the deal. Oh, and, and this is interesting. This is how David sees this. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You notice that the king is not there for himself. He's there for the people that God has put him in place of. But we all know the realities. There's a, if you think of a forever king and you look at the nation of Israel, you're like, uh-uh, that didn't happen. The kings were actually debased. They went after other gods. They did the wrong things. And in reality, Israel is put out into exile because of it. And you have to know that when we get to the New Testament, there's this feeling that even though they came out of exile, there's not a king on the throne. No king has fulfilled what God has said. Solomon built a temple for God, and I think that's partially fulfilled in, in David's, right after David's life, Solomon builds a temple as he was instructed. That's absolutely correct. But Solomon turned out to be kind of a bad guy too. <laughs> so at the peak of everything with Solomon, it's just another bad guy. But God says, no, it doesn't matter if they're iniquity because I promised you. So is there a forever king? And you know what? There, this is where the messianic hope comes from this Davidic covenant. It's this idea of there will be an anointed one who will remedy all that God has promised. He's going to give us rest. He's going to give us a place. He will ensure that his presence will be with us all the time. But, you know, they come out of exile and then they're under the Romans' thumb. So there's this deep yearning and desire to see the Davidic covenant completed. 
There's this desire in Israel like, no, 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 God, we want you to come in and fulfill this thing. We know that we're messed up, but we want you to come in. We are waiting the day where Yahweh steps in and changes everything. So when we go to the New Testament, you see things like this, speaking of a a man named Jesus Christ, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. If you think about these covenants, this is just time to go. Jesus somehow is connected to these two gentlemen. How about this from Luke? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see this? This is, this is early on in the gospel accounts. They're basically saying, no, 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 you need to pay attention. Covenants, do you remember this covenant language? We're talking about a king who is fulfilling this eternal kingship. He's stepping in and he will be the one who ensures that there is a place and that God's presence will be with us, that a people will be unified around this king and be unified then again around the, the God of the universe, the true king. So, Even Jesus says these unique things. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This merchant that's like the kingdom of heaven took everything. You've got to think about a merchant. Merchant buys and sells. That's how they make a living. Buys and sells, buys and sells. This is his retirement transaction because he's buying the one thing and paying everything he's got to buy this pearl of great price. Jesus becomes the pearl of great price. Jesus becomes the fulfillment, these prophecies coming together in the person and work of Jesus, who not only is fully man, but is is God. God coming down to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to Israel, to David, to fulfill his desire from the very beginning to say, Eden was what was supposed to happen. I wanted to be with you. I wanted you to have a safe place. I wanted to create a people who are surrounded by, they're coming encompassing me and all that I have that's good for all of creation. God will relentlessly seek to restore his people to a place that is full of his presence. And, And the New Testament is just, it's dripping with the concept of this is done through Jesus. Jesus has, is the one. He's the one who came. But we have to consider how it happened. This king didn't come and destroy the Romans. This king didn't come and rule with an iron scepter the way we would think. But yet he comes and lets all the evil of all of creation pour out on him the people he would come for, the people that he's wanting to organize would reject him. The whole, the whole people of the place. They didn't want his presence. So they strung him up to a cross. And when you see these words, which were nailed above Jesus, you have to think, man, that's so ironic. The very king of the Jews, the true king, is hanging bloody from a cross in order to ensure victory for us all, in order 
to bring together those covenants and to bring that pearl of great price. All of the agony on the cross, all of the grit and dirt that Jesus took on for all of our behalf, he's absorbing all of that and somehow over all the time of all of the brokenness of humanity, God breaks forth and opens an oyster where we have the pearl of great price, the pearl worth selling everything, worth giving up everything in your life for that pearl. Because when you do that, you will be, you will be happy, you'll be glad, you'll be looking for, can, you, can I explain to you why this is so valuable? In a, in a couple of minutes, we're going to take communion, but I want you to really, I want you to think of this story. So worship team, you guys can all come back up. I think we all have a habit of going one of two directions, just like David. David's like, man, God's done all this cool stuff for, for, for me, time for payback. Or I'm going to stake a claim for God in Jerusalem. God's like, mm, you don't have to do that. My claim is staked. It's actually staked in you. So there are some of you here that literally you're feeling you've got to pay God back. Maybe you're looking at the cross now from a different angle. Maybe you've just been recently in scripture and you're seeing, no, no, why would this God do this on my behalf? Why would he literally take all of that angst, anger, brokenness on himself why would he take the disorder of everything in order to create order for me? So that can lead you down a path of, okay, I must pay him back. But you look to David and you see, no, no, God didn't need that temple. He didn't want that temple, not from David. It would come. But his point was, David, I'm doing this. I'm doing this through you. I chose you. I chose your, your bloodline. I chose the kings that would come from you. The other part of you might be the type that you're just good at saving yourselves, <laughs> right? You, you feel like you've got things all taken care of. Or maybe that you are the resolution, you are the solution to the problem. And, and again, I'd say, look at David. Look at the promises to David, the, the promises fulfilled in Jesus. You, you may feel like you've got to do these things in order to protect your people, but God says, no, 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 I am relentlessly using all of my power to restore a people to a place that is full of my presence. But I think, you know, sometimes we just have to ask, do we want to be in his presence? There are times when, like, you're, not, you're, you're thinking about other things. Life gets get so busy around you. I, you know, I want to stick a knife in busyness. Most of our busyness is sin. It is, straight up. And, and in reality, most of our busyness is us getting our own, saving ourselves, coming up with the answer in our own way, resolving our weak ourselves without relying on God and his spirit that's put in us because that's, that's it. He's, he's given us his presence, but we don't seek it. So we're going to all stand and we're going to take communion together. Um, and I want you to take a moment to really think about this and confess. 
God, am I, where am I, where am I thinking I need to pay you back? I mean, it's one thing to love God. It's one thing to honor him. But there are places in our lives where we're saying, you know what, God, I'm going to do this because I know you've done this all for me, so I'm going to do this for you. Because I think what you really need to hear is, I love you. Don't do that for me. Love me with all you have, but that's not going to, that's not resolving my plan for the world. My plan's going to get done. I want you a part of it. I want you in it. But the moment you think you need to pay me back, you've misunderstood me. I really think that's what God's saying. Now, and the other part of you, man, and I, I'm going I'm to put my finger, it is busyness. There are, we find all kinds of reasons to fill our calendar each and every week. We do. We fill it up. We fill it with things that make us feel important. We fill it with things that make our children love us. We fill it with all, you know, all these things, and some of them are actually not bad things, but at the end of the day, if you've left no time, no white space for God, either prayer, Bible, or literally proclaiming his name to friends, family, coworkers, etc., then you have to ask, man, do I really, do I really want his presence? In the New Testament, it says, the Lord Jesus, when he was going to be betrayed, says when, the day he was going to be betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It's for you. Do this in memory of me. Does that make sense? These covenants actually are marked by sometimes symbols like this. This is our way of saying, no, 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 I understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these covenants, and I'm on his side. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you take this cup in remembrance of me. Let's remember our covenant promises. So every time we do this, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus and him coming. Because this God is faithful. He is absolutely head over heels in love with his people like a father who disciplines, who chastises, who tries to move along to transform into the, into the person of his family. So when you call Jesus king, you're saying, I'm part of this family. That's what should motivate you. He is faithful and just and hopeful. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for you your hesed, for your steadfast love for your people, for your, your commitment to your promises to your people that have actually come down through the ages to us such that we can benefit of no, nothing of our own. We didn't do anything, but yet you loved us. You loved your creation because you want to restore it. You want to be in its presence in a pure and real and full way. So we honor you today. We go out of these doors saying, we are with King Jesus. 
He is the fulfillment. He is the one. And we will follow his life of self-sacrifice to give hope to others. In Jesus' name.